0: Praise the Lord. I'm a little jealous. They're really excited to go to the children's church rather than stay and hear me. But I'll get over it. Praise the Lord. Um, please join me in a brief word of prayer, Heavenly Father. Uh, again, we thank you for what you've already done and blessing our hearts through the worship. And and Lord, we ask your blessing on the Unsung Hero Project, Lord. We ask uh, you to provide, Lord, to provide. Uh, as it is, as it is your, your custom, Lord, to provide over and above uh, what Robin even is asking for or thinks is possible, Lord. Uh, we just thank you for the divine provision there, Lord. And, and Lord, we also lift up our, uh, our very own uh, Turner family, Father God, uh, Robert and Annette. We lift up Annette, uh, who is uh, having surgery this week, Lord, and, and you know the situation that uh, they're dealing with. Uh, Lord, we put our trust in you. Uh, they are trusting in you, and and they are endeavoring to do this in, in faith. Uh, Lord, uh, fully trusting in your ability to uh, to to heal and your ability to see them through. And uh, we thank you, Father God, for a good for the good report that shall come uh, at the end of this week uh, concerning Annette's health, Lord. And we give you praise for it in advance, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to uh, go to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. Uh, Primarily, that's what uh, I'll be uh, preaching from today. On the subject of Jesus Christ, our sure foundation. The message title is Jesus Christ, our sure uh, foundation. You know read the parable and then uh, we'll go back through it and talk about it and it reads hear another parable this parable comes on the heels of a previous one and it builds on a theme that was in that uh, previous parable about two sons one that when the father asked him to work into the vineyard said he wouldn't go but went the other one said he would go but didn't and in that parable uh, Jesus emphasizes that the fact that uh, regardless of how things started the way things ultimately ended who do you think obeyed or honored the father and they had to say the one who actually did what the father asked him to do uh, rather than the one who said he would and didn't do it and so in that parable he was accusing the Pharisees of being that son that on the outwardly they honor God, but in their hearts they are disobedient and rebellious. So after that it says, "Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, these being the religious leaders of the day who he's dialoguing with, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What is going on here is a dialogue. Y'all know that there's been drama between the religious leaders and Jesus repeatedly. They wanted to know by what authority did Jesus do the things that he did and said the things that he said? What gave him the authority to be a representative of God? What made him think that he was on their level? And Jesus, not one to back down, not one to cower, not one to uh, suffer fools lightly, would always parry and flip things right back on them. And Jesus said, I'll tell you that. I'll be happy to answer your question with authority I do what I do. If you'll answer a question for me. John's baptism. Was it of man or was it of God? And they contemplated among themselves. Well, if we say it's of God, that's not good for us. It'll actually, it, it, it'll actually benefit him, and we don't want to do that. But if we say it's of man, then the people recognize John as a prophet and they'll be upset with us. So we can't do that. So we'll just say we don't know. And Jesus is like, well, I won't tell you. I won't answer your question either. But then he does hit them with, the, he does hit them with parables because there's something he wants to address here. Now, this story, what I, I consider this story is basically an allegory. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with that term or not, but an allegory is a story within a story. There is the surface story that's obvious to everyone. It's easy for everyone to see, but the real story lies underneath. Now, the allegory itself tends to be, it doesn't have to be, it's not always the case, it tends to be a fictional story. But the story has symbolic meaning. I'm sure... Heather could probably describe this better than I can. I'm going to do my best. She can help me clean it up later. Within every allegory is a story about real life. Real life events or the the human condition or issues that are common to man. Complex issues like politics or religion. I read a book, uh, read it to my daughters, uh, called Animal Farm. They both like and hate that book. They really hate the pigs. No, but on the surface, it looks like drama that's going on on a farm between animals. These animals don't like the humans. They, 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 They drive the humans off the farm so they can run their own farm. But it was an allegory that spoke of the issue of the day pertaining politics and war and, 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 and communism and things of that nature. It couldn't be spoken out openly, but you could address those issues in allegorical form. And for those who were intuitive, those who were aware, you could see the real story that lay underneath. And that's what an allegory does sometimes issues are too complex for people to grasp but you can help people understand issues through allegory and so that didn't mean to make it sound like english class or anything like that but but jesus brilliantly chooses to address these chief priests and pharisees with an allegory if you want to Another biblical example of an allegory. how many of you know remember or read in scripture King David what that, that, that he committed adultery with Bathsheba and uh, who was the wife of Uriah and all that he did there? Well, God sent a man named Nathan to him, and Nathan and he bangs on the door. Uh, well, he comes to address the king, and the king receives him. And he tells him a story. The story itself is an allegory. He tells him a story about two men, one that had a flock of sheep, another had one little ewe lamb. That's all he had, him and his family. It slept with the family like a pet. They loved it dearly. And yet when the rich man who had flocks of sheep had a visitor come to him, he could have fed this visitor from any one of the sheep in his flock. And he tells him this story. But what does the rich man do? He went and took the only little ewe lamb that the poor man had and, 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 and provided that for his servant. And he asked, it, he asked that question to David. Well, he, he uh, told that story to David, and it made David upset. raw We got to throw the book at that guy. That guy deserves to die for what he's done. And Nathan says, you're that man. You didn't know it when I was telling the story. The allegory had a story within it. There was an underneath story that spoke to a real person. The man that had the one you lamb was Uriah. The lamb in the allegory was Bathsheba. The man, the rich man who had an abundance of lambs was you, King David. You're the man who took the one man sheep for your own selfish desires. And so that's what the allegory does. And Jesus does the same thing that Nathan uh, uh, did. I'm going to tell you a story that I know is going to rile you up. I know your righteous indignation is going to it's gonna come to the surface and bubble up. And when I tell you the story, you're going to think it involves someone else, but this is a story that's about you. I'm gonna let your righteous indignation come out and then I'm gonna hit you with the story underneath that you can't see. Already alluded to the, the previous parable. That Jesus taught, that really ups, they were already on edge before this parable. They were already upset because Jesus, in the previous parable, just told them, You guys are phonies. You're failing to live up to being obedient to what God says. You're the son that outwardly says you'll do what God said, but you but you don't do it if we observe you and we just listen to what you say we think you're the most godliest people in the world but if we saw the fruit but once the fruit comes out we see that you're not that at all and so he was so he'd already told them outwardly you're pious and you appear to be people of God but God knows your heart and you failed miserably to be obedient to him And right on the heels of that, he tells this parable in case they didn't get it the first time. He tells them that they, ah, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but uh, we'll just say the parable of the tenants builds on that previous parable in which he chastised the religious leaders as the disobedient sons who say the right things but are disobedient and rebellious at heart so if this is an allegory let's identify some things here before we go back through it in the allegory there's the master of the house or the owner of the vineyard he represents god the tenants represents the religious leaders The vineyard represents Israel, or the people of God. We'll talk about the fruit, but the people of uh, the people of God are supposed to manifest or yield certain fruits. God expects it. God demands it. It is the responsibility of the tenants to till, to cultivate, and to help the people of God, lead them into the producing of the fruit that honor God. And God will come and demand that. And he's right to expect it. There's a watchtower or, and a wall, a tower and a wall. Uh, I'll just lump them together as uh, representing uh, uh, protection. Protection. Both uh, protection for uh, the grapes and for the facility in general, for the vineyard. The servants that are sent represent the prophets and the messengers sent by God throughout the generations. Whenever the children of God were disobedient or needed to be corrected, he would send prophets. And many of those prophets were abused, rejected. Some stoned. Jeremiah was stoned. If we want to bring it into the New Testament or the Gospels, one of those prophets was John the Baptist. He got beheaded. Jesus is Messiah. He's also prophetic. He got nailed to a cross. But that is a continuation of a long history of God's people not always being humble and repentant when God sent servants demanding fruit. Uh, the son in the story is Jesus. And I would say, if I were to, what is the allegory? I would say this whole parable is an allegory, is, 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 is allegorically is a history of the many times God expected fruit from his vineyard, only to have the tenant farmers, religious leaders, rebel suppose I could stop right there but that's just not me so we're going to go back through it there's a master of a house who planted a vineyard now who's the master of the house he represents who God The vineyard represents who? The people of God, Israel. Again, this is what allegory does. So when we read this, I want our eyes to be fully open to the significance of what Jesus is saying to the audience that he is addressing. He's addressing the religious leaders who are in a bit of a contest and a battle with them. The religious order that they are used to, Jesus is upsetting the apple cart. They grew up in this system. Their fathers grew up in this religious system. Their grandfathers grew up in this religious system. God hadn't spoken through that religious system in 500 years. And here he comes. With John the Baptist being the forerunner and leading the way and preparing the way for Jesus. And then Jesus coming. He's the Messiah. He's here. He is speaking to you the word of God. He is the one who is going to be the fulfillment of all law, and he is going to be nailed to a cross for our redemption. And yet the ones who should know that the most can't see it. They're fighting against it. He plants the vineyard. He puts a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country so he left and it was common in that day to have tenant farmers that actually worked the land tilled it they did all the stuff that the farmer who owned the property would do and they and they got a place to live they lived on they lived on it and when the harvest came they they took of the harvest only what they needed, and then the real owner of the property got a percentage. That's how it worked. It was not uncommon at all. So the owner of the property who gave them a place to live, gave them a place to work, they didn't do this for free. He paid them for their service to work his property and to also benefit from the fruits of the property. So it's not like they were being treated unfairly. But somewhere along the way, in the process of doing the work, the season for fruit drew near. And this master, representing God, sent his servants to the tenants who had been hired to work his land. And all he wanted was his fruit. All he wanted what was due him. He wasn't asking for an unfair portion. He wasn't asking for anything that they didn't expect for him to ask for. But when his servants arrived, to demanding the fruit on behalf of the owner that was due him, the tenants' hearts weren't right. Somewhere along the line, they forgot that they didn't own the property that they were working. It wasn't theirs. It was the owners. They were caretakers, not the owners. There's a lesson there. Because a lot of times, you know, one of the things I had to resolve when it came to tithing is that my money is not mine. I'm not, the 10% of my money is not the only thing that God owns. He owns the 100%. He's blessed me with the increase and out of it, he asked for the 10th. No, he demands the 10th. But that doesn't mean the 90% is mine to do it whatever I will. Uh, It still all belongs to him. Right? And so, and here we are, just like with the Pharisees in their time, we are them now as representatives of the Lord. The communities that we live in, the cities that we live in, the country that we live in, and so forth, we are tenant farmers of God because it all belongs to him. And when he comes, he's going to demand fruit. And he's going to send his servants to the tenants. He sent his servants to the tenants, the, 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 the Jeremiah's, the, the, the Ezekiel's, the Isaiah's, the, the prophets. He, he, he sent the John the Baptist. He sent them. For nothing more than what was due him. And don't make no mistake about it, uh, ladies and gentlemen, he expects the same of us today. He says the field is white for harvest. Pray, therefore, that the Lord will send out laborers to work that harvest. You know what? We are... We, don't just be praying for somebody else to do it. We are the laborers that are to work the harvest. And what God wants is fruit that befits repentance. What God want what God wants was the people of God, when confronted with the Word of God, and realize that their lives are in conflict with the Word of God, would have hearts humble enough to. Humble themselves and repent and get in right standing with God. Not people that would resist the truth. To stay in their own, in their own world, doing their own thing, doing what they want to do and, 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 and giving God credit for it. No, 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 no. He wants to be Lord of our lives. He wants disciples. He wanted them then, he wants them now. And what we can't do is get into the mindset of doing what we think. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it leads to destruction. So, so we can't go by our own ideas And put God in a box and say, this is how God's going to have to work in our society. This is how God's going to have to do X, Y, and Z in my life. No, 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 no. There is one owner of the vineyard. And we're going to have to do the will of the vineyard owner. We can't lose sight of the fact that it's not ours. We're managing something that belongs to God if we if we lose sight of that then when God comes demanding fruit we're giving him we're giving him flesh we're giving him carnality we're giving him rebellious hearts that aren't tender and receptive to him and his word I hope you're hearing that today so I know we tend my uh well a lot of bibles will say this is the uh uh, parable of the vineyard no it's not about the vineyard right it could be a parable of the vineyard it could be a parable of the tenants and so forth but but what is the message that god is saying here he's he's dealing with jesus is dealing with the religious leaders those who are supposed to be representatives of god He's challenging them, and he is addressing their hearts, whether their hearts belong to God or not, or whether, whether their wills are subjected to God's will, or whether they're doing their own thing, and in the process of doing their own thing, they're bumping up and rejecting God, and they may not even be knowing it. And that's a dangerous position to be in, and, and it is a cautionary tale that's instructive for us to keep ourselves humble before God, and 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 and, re- and recognizing what lane we walk in before Him, these tenants started acting like owners. And because they did, because they were used to doing their own thing, when the owner made a demand, let's see how they behaved. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Simple enough, easy, should have been no problem. But verse 35, and the tenants took his servants. They beat one. They killed another. This is violence. They killed another and stoned another. Oh, man, you, you, you would think that the vineyard owner would uh, drop the hammer. Bring an army, vanquish these people out. No, he does what seems to be an unwise thing. After his first servant said he sent got beaten, killed, and stoned, he sent some more. He sent other servants, more than he, more than the first. I don't know how many more, but he sent a few more. And these tenants did the same thing to them. All right, that's two strikes. So what does this vineyard owner do after having two sets of servants killed, stoned, and beaten? He does something I wouldn't have done. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. They might treat my servants any kind of way, but surely they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, so they recognized him. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. We're going to stop. And talk about that for a minute. I've already said that the servants that were sent, they represent the many times throughout Israel's history where God sent messengers. God sent prophets. To tell Israel of its erroneous ways, and sometimes Israel repented. But you don't have to read a whole bunch of the of the Old Testament before you recognize a theme. That a lot of times repentance did not come until they were suffering the consequences of their sin. God came to them and approached them and and tried to to, uh, cajole them and tried to encourage them to turn from their wicked ways. And they persisted in them. Even those who led them, who were supposed to lead them in the things of God. Will morally compromise themselves, and how can how can those who are morally compromised and walking in disobedience to God really challenge the people of God to do different? <laughs> Eli himself had two sons that were evil before God, and he did not do what it, what was his responsibility to do. He didn't deal with them and he let them run amok. And it had destructive consequences among the people of God. He condoned behavior that should have been dealt with strictly and strongly. We're not in the Old Testament configuration anymore. We're not We don't have a a priesthood system and everything, but you and I are priests in the Lord. As believers, we are, and this will be more focused on next week, what this means to us. This week is Jesus is the sure foundation, and I'm getting there, I promise. But it shows how important it is to have leadership that is humble before god that is genuine in his pursuit of god and it recognizes the authority of god that we may have a leadership position but we are under shepherds to to the ultimate leader and it's not our will that matters it's his will And just as much as I might challenge the people of God to humble themselves and be obedient to God, I more so, as a leader, need to be doing the same. I need to be walking in that that I'm challenging you in. Right? And and if I'm saying you need to have a certain attitude towards sinners out there that need salvation, well, we need to have the same attitude that our Savior had. One One of the obvious Contrast, and I, I say it all the time, one of the obvious contrasts between Jesus and, and the religious leaders of the day, the religious leaders of the day looked down their nose, looked down their noses and looked with contempt upon those who were recognized as sinners. By contrast, Jesus, the living embodiment of the word of God, Who knew no sin but came down to pay the penalty for our sin is looking at the people that he's about to die for with love, with compassion. He doesn't keep them at arm's length, he he brings them in close. He doesn't look down his nose at them, he forgives them. He doesn't let them stone a woman caught in adultery. He acknowledges her sin, but he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Don't you know the religious leaders were a part of that crowd? Leading and egging on the crowd to take stones and stone this woman to death. And yet even they, when Jesus made that statement, realized that they were not worthy to throw that stone. They dropped their stone just like everybody else, but they were the ring leaders. See, that's what bad leadership does. When it's not subservient to God, it's going to be led by the flesh and it's going to lead the people of God astray. And it it was their hard hearts and being led by their carnal minds and and their worldly reasoning that caused them to miss the son of glory, the son of God in their very midst. Think about that. And if they, if it could happen to them, it could happen to us. Right? And so Jesus is talking to these people. And he's telling them, not just that they are out of the will of God, not just that they are the ones he's looking at right now have rebellious hearts toward God. But, but he's weaving this allegory in a way that lets them know y'all are a part of a long history of people in your position doing what you're doing right now. You're not giving God the fruits that's due him. You're killing the ones who he's sending with the word from God. And instead of receiving that word and responding in obedience to God, you're rebelling and you're killing the messenger. Maybe that's where that phrase came from. Don't shoot the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. You don't like what they say? It's easy to turn an attacking word upon the person. What they're saying isn't wrong. They may be telling the truth, but we look for ways to disqualify them, which helps us be able to reject the truth that they're giving us. If they're not perfect, then I justify not receiving the truth of what they say. Well, by that standard, we can't tell each other anything. Is there anybody in here who's who's walked in perfection in the word of God? Anyone? Well, I didn't think so. Well, so if being perfect is required, if I can't be a person who's made mistakes and then elevate the good in you and hold you to the standard of God's word, then how in the world can I help you grow in the Lord? If I'm a person who will take adopt a defensive posture And if someone tries to come to me with truth and tell me that I'm not walking like a man of God ought to walk in this area, well, then I need to be subject to that person. If I won't allow that, then I'm hindering my own growth in the Lord. I'm not being accountable. I'm not being subject to a fellow brother or sister in the Lord. If we're going to bear fruits, when when God comes, demanding fruit. We need to be produced. We need to produce those fruit. Uh, let's keep it going. Well, it says the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to those tenants? So they took. Oh, I'm sorry. They took him out and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What he was doing was prophetically telling them that they were going to kill him. He was telling them of the of what he was about to suffer at their hands they're the tenants he's the son he was crucified on a cross outside the vineyard you and I are his inheritance we're who he died for They killed him trying to take his inheritance, but they didn't know that the killing of him was how he was going to receive and achieve and acquire his inheritance. So this allegory is giving them a historical account all the way up into what has not even happened yet. He's letting them know through an allegory that they're even going to be responsible for his death. But then he goes on and says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? In the same way David did when Nathan shared his allegory with David, they are wroth. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. That's what God wants. He wants us to yield the fruit that is due him In its season. And it's what he rightfully expects, and it's what we owe him. Right? So when we're considering whether the person who offended us deserves our forgiveness and and deserves us to be loving and so forth and so on, we need to, hey, get that out of your mind. Again, you're working in a vineyard that doesn't belong to you. Right? It's not about whether you think they deserve it or not. It's about what God requires of you, right? And, and, and love, forgiveness, peace, patience, all those fruit of the spirit that we ought to be exhibiting is what, the, is what different times in life are going to challenge us and require of us to produce in honor of him. He wants us to be fruitful in a way that honors and glorifies him. So that if you, you know, you, you squeeze an orange, you expect orange juice to come out of it. When you squeeze us, we, you, you expect Christ-like character to come out of it. It ought to be fruit that, that fruit that you ought to be seeing from us as representatives of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. It's easy because it's the world we grew up in. It's the mindset that we're accustomed to some of them are mindsets that we learned from our parents and they weren't godly mindsets well we're going to have to be renewed and we're going to have to recognize it for what it is and say even if what mama and daddy taught me is not consistent with god's truth and i got to reject what mama and daddy taught me because i got to obey god right and so you know so even if that's what I believed growing up, the word of God says otherwise. And so it shouldn't bend. It can't bend. I'm the one that needs to bend. Because when harvest time comes, I want to give God the fruit that is due him. And that that should be our objective. So if someone misuses you, if someone offends you, if someone You know, does hateful things to you. It's not about whether they deserve it. It's about whether you're going to be a faithful tenant to the vineyard owner. And whether he deserves your faithfulness. Whether he deserves the fruit of his vineyard. Are you hearing me? And so they said he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vine to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And so I tell you what, this to me, that little verse 41 right there, uh, I'm not the, the sharpest biblical scholar and everything, but I will tell you this. So he already talked about you know, these tenants representing the religious order of the day, but he will take the vineyard from them and let it out to other tenants who will give him the, the, fruit, uh, the, the fruit from his vineyard. That, that, that's, this is after cross. This is the Gentiles grafted in. It's a, a people of God who have surrendered their hearts to the Lord, and we are his disciples who live lives that are in complete obedience to him. And when he comes demanding fruit, we're not going to kill the son. We are alive because of the son. And so, so, so we're going to give him the fruits when he demands it. At least that's, that should be our aim. He, he's given us a will and, and we can act like the original tenants. But, but the vineyard is in our hands now. And just like them, we are the tenant farmers. Let's not get in the way. Of God's master plan. Let's not get in the way of what God is doing and what God wants to do. Let's not superimpose our own ideas and our own plans and our own objectives in place of what God wants to do. Doesn't matter how good of an idea it sounds like, it doesn't matter how much you can justify it. What matters is is, is this is this God or not? Am I producing, is it producing the fruit that is honoring and pleasing to God? Or does it produce rotten fruit? Does it demand something of me that in some way compromises a clean conscience and a pure walk with God? If I can't do it and fully honor God, then it has got to go. whether it's a job, whether it's voluntary, whether, whatever it is. I don't care if it's a, a, a denomination that you're a part of that compromises what you know to be right in God, you better get out of that denomination. Even in politics, at some point, politics, you know, I, I look at it this way, and I, I talked with uh, one of the brothers about this. Politics Is good and needful in society, but you gotta be careful because it's a master too. Whatever, no matter how small or large your political office is, you're answerable to a constituency. You're answerable to a constituency that's a combination of people of faith and people who are not of faith. And when you take an oath, you are taking an oath to represent the people of that area, be they people of faith or not faith. And if the majority, oh, I'll put it this way, if the majority of the people want something that is not of God because the majority of your constituents are not of God, now you got a dilemma. Because do I stay honorable? Do I stay in line with what I know to be right and true in God? Or do I honor my oath to the constituency to represent them in their wishes? So I've got to compromise either God or I'm compromising my oath to my constituency. Now I'm just saying at some point, that dilemma comes up. And what do you do? If honoring God there is your primary objective, then maybe the other thing has got to go. If, if it ever gets to that point. I'm not here to tell you anything about what you should be doing politically. Lord have mercy. I, 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 don't, that's not, I don't want any of that smoke whatsoever. But to the extent that politics can get in the way of what God wants to do in his people, in your life, and what he's called you to, I'll stand, I'll stand against that all day, every day. If your profession, whether it's education, whatever it is, if it's going to compromise your walk, if you're having advanced things that are not of God, you got a choice to make. What's going to be your master? It doesn't matter how noble or ennoble the profession or industry or whatever it is. It's not not about what our perceptions are. It's about whether or not it's going to enhance my ability to give God the fruits that he deserves or if it's going to hinder it. And if it hinders it, it's got to go. Or at the very least, if there is a conflict, there's only one winner. And that's God. I can't let it cause me to give him anything less than the fruit that he rightfully expects. Well. All right, I'm going to. We're going to have to finish this next week, but I'll finish out this passage. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. And Jesus responds. Interesting. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in their eyes. He's he's, he's, he's referencing Psalm 118 that's where that that's where that comes from psalm 118 and just like nathan said you are that man when david said the book ought to be thrown at that man he needs to suffer the consequences of what he did well you're the man and uh consequences are you're right and you're going to suffer those consequences On the heels of their righteous indignation, because they, hey, they're, they're, they're representatives of the religious order of the day, they can't be okay with what these tenants did. He says, he identifies himself as the stone. You guys are the builders. You reject me, but your rejection of me is going to lead to your murder of me. Now, God's going to turn that for good. But you rebellious religious leaders who are following your own objectives in the name of God, doing what you have decided is the right thing to do in Jesus' name. And so, but when Jesus comes to you saying, with, with the actual mission and purpose of God being presented to you, you reject it. I'm the stone. That you rejected. But through your rejection. I'm going to become. The cornerstone. He's talking about. Going to the cross on our behalf. And redeeming us. Delivering us from sin and death. And redeeming us. And reconciling us to God. The very thing rejected. By them was going to become the chief cornerstone. Stone. It, it, it won't be anything. He didn't make it happen. He didn't manipulate and cajole and try to persuade by his own reason and everything. It was the Lord's doing. And it was marvelous in our sight. Right? It, all he did was do what he saw the father do. Say what he heard the father say. And he let the father do what was in the Father's will to do. And he went to the cross for our sin and redeemed us through it. And so after he says that, he says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. He's talking to the religious leaders. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. You've been an entrustee. You have been Tenant farmers managing God's people, hey, that's taken away from you now. I'm going to give it to some other tenants, ones who will be followers of Jesus, ones who won't reject the chief cornerstone. They've received the chief cornerstone as their Lord and Savior. So the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. That's what's expected of us, y'all. But verse 43 is important because it emphasizes the consequences of repeated rebellion, the consequences of not giving God the fruit that is due him when he demands it. We can't live fruitless lives. We can't live lives in which we're okay or apathetic about not producing fruit that God rightfully demands we produce as his children in this earth. Are y'all hearing me? Amen. That's what he calls us to. He's given us the kingdom. The keys to the kingdom is in our possession. We have them in Christ, but, but he gave it to us to produce fruit, expecting us to produce fruit unto him. Not what satisfies us, but what satisfies him. Not what makes us feel good and gives us more peace, but what satisfies him, what is it that the owner of the vineyard the the, the 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 master of the house, what does he want produced? and are we or are we not producing it and don't take this message as an accusation that you're not producing it but Whether you're producing it or not, you need to hear it. I need to hear it. I need to say it. Uh, God wants it said. There we go. But there's consequences, especially if it's repeated, to not giving God the fruits that he demands. Not what we want to give him, what he demands. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken in pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You know, I think we need to get to the point, and I'm not saying this is exactly what this means, but, you know, in whatever area of our lives we've propped up something that that is a monument to ourselves or it, it, it's, it's maybe the kind of fruit that we're satisfied with seeing but it's not the fruit that God wants wants. if if, if we're hard at heart, if we're hard taking a hard stance and God it's hard for God to break through uh, may that stone, that cornerstone may it fall on us and crush us may it crush that thing that's a hard shell that is resistant to what God is trying to do in our lives, Lord crush me if that's what needs to be done in order for me to see the error of my ways and repent, Lord, let the chief cornerstone fall on me in a way that produces repentance. You know, it's got to be that important to us. Am I, am I doing what pleases God? Really, am I? Am I bearing the fruit that he demands or am not? If I'm not, then Lord, do what you got to do. Hallelujah. Uh, I will, uh, I'll wrap up right now. Uh, Just a a quick verse. I'll repeat it next week when we get into uh, furthering this message. But 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 and 11 say this. According, and this is Paul saying, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled Master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is going to build upon it. But let each one take care how he builds on it. And in case there is any question about what the foundation is, it says in verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation. Uh, Any other foundation is not a God. Mixing something into the foundation that is Jesus Christ compromises the integrity of the foundation. The foundation is none other than Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he's done, what that means to us, who we are in him what he's called us to, all of that rests in the foundation of who he is. He is the sure foundation. The promises of God in him are yes and amen, right? And so... uh, 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 2 Timothy 2 says but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal the Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who is named after the name of the Lord depart from iniquity so it's this seal the Lord knows who are his we ain't got to prove anything to people he knows who are his and those of us who are his he demands fruit the fruit he wants to see Not the fruit we want to give him, the fruit he wants, the fruit he's owed, the fruit he is rightful to, he's rightfully expecting of us. So we can learn the lesson from the tenant farmers. You know, sometimes the best lessons or the, (laughs) at least the uh, least painful lessons is learning the lessons that, uh, that somebody else had to learn the hard way. You know, <laughs> so uh, unfortunately, on too many occasions, I, uh, I I did not get the memo and I had to learn the lesson the hard way myself. Um, and uh, praise God for his grace and that he got me through that. But there were also a number of occasions where I saw the consequences of a certain way of living life. And even though there wasn't a preacher in my ear, telling me the moral of that, that I should be taking from that, I knew I didn't want that devastation. I didn't want those consequences. And I adopted a personal standard as it pertained to that issue in my life that I'm not going to do or live or or do the things that that person did because I saw what it yielded. Right? And so God gives us plenty of opportunity We've got story after story after story in the Bible of the blessing that people incurred by obeying God. Even, when it, even though they had to overcome challenges in many cases before that blessing was manifested, there was blessing in favor of God when walking in obedience. And there were devastating consequences for disobedience. Rebellion. God's grace gave him time after time after time, gave him chance after chance after chance, but at some point, consequences of our actions will follow. So I want to, but but let me encourage you that Jesus Christ is your firm foundation. You don't have to question if your salvation is real. If you're giving your heart to Jesus, you don't have to worry if your salvation will stand. Because Jesus saved you to the utmost. That last scripture I read, God's firm foundation stands. It stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. God knows you. You may not be walking in perfection today. You may have got up on the wrong side of the bed today. And on the way here, you you might have cussed your spouse up one side and down the other. I pray to God that didn't happen. But I've been doing this too long to know that it's not possible. Some days are harder than others. Some days are easy for us to walk uh, walk in the spirit some days the the path of least resistance is just to walk in the flesh and depending on which day you catch us on we, we can be in one path or the other <laughs> praise God and I hope if in the unfortunate event that you catch me on a bad day I'm inviting you to come, pick me up, lovingly challenge me. If you're seeing behavior that is not consistent with the character of Christ, uh, be concerned enough for me and love me enough to confront me. Don't bring an attitude with you, please. (laughs) I pray that you do it in love. You know, uh, don't tempt me to get an attitude, you know. So uh, I pray that I would uh, accept it in humility. But uh, I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to—but I want to echo again the consequence mentioned in verse 43 as Jesus is talking to those who represent the religious order of the day. Your constant rebellious heart— your constant failure to produce the fruit unto God that God was rightful to demand of you has led to the devastating consequence of the kingdom being taken from under your care. And you know who it will be given? We uh, we don't know the names of them yet, but it's going to be let out to other tenants bearing the fruit of uh, that. Uh, bearing fruit unto God in its season. So I lovingly challenge us as a body of believers, as those who are named after the name of Christ. I challenge you to be to to to, to humble yourself before God and to be committed to producing the fruits that He's due. Whether that's in your marriage, whether that's you in your role as a parent or a child, whether that's you in your role as an employer or an employee, as a teacher or a student, right? Uh, whatever industry, as an industry leader, whatever it is, um, you know, acknowledge your responsibility for God. That that God has planted me in Stillwater. In this church, in New Covenant Fellowship, he's planted me in this country, right? I gotta look at it as a vineyard. I don't own it. What I want to see done in it is not what matters, it's what the owner of the vineyard wants to see done in it. And am I going to act like the owner and establish my own agenda? And have a hard heart when the owner sends servants demanding fruit? Or am I going to be, yes, Lord? I want to give that person a peace of my mind. This is not my vineyard. The, the vineyard owner demands fruit of me. And Lord, I will bear you that fruit. close your eyes and just bow your heads and just uh, just meditate on the, on what you've heard this morning and I, I don't want you to do it just because I said it but I want you to do it in sincerity. I want you to acknowledge that you are a tenant in a vineyard that is owned by God. And in sincerity, and only if you can do it in sincerity, declare your intent and your purposeful determination to produced fruit of God when he demands it make it personal say it to God you can do it silently do it under your breath you can do it out loud if you want to but I want you to do something with the word that you've you've heard we heard an allegory you've heard an explanation of what it represents we are the tenants the 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 we are the tenant farmers now what will we declare unto the lord i pray that what we declare unto the lord is that lord this is your vineyard the fruit that you desire will be produced upon demand No matter the season, no matter the circumstances, I will produce the fruit that you are rightful to expect from me. I'll give you a couple more minutes.